Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. <laughs> Welcome to Sawbones, a Merrill tour of misguided medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. Sydney, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Justin. It's our show. Yeah. I'm not really technically welcoming you to it, I guess. How are you doing, Justin? I'm well. How are you? Because you don't look super happy. Well, Justin, I'm not going to lie to you. This is going to be maybe a rough one. Okay. Okay. So as many of you probably are already aware, it's Pride Month. Right. And which is a, a month that we celebrate, well, we should every month, but mm-hmm. a, a month to really focus on how we should celebrate the LGBTQ community. Uh, and I think that that's a time for a lot of happiness and joy, but it's also important for us to remember the history of the persecution of the LGBTQ, LGBTQ community, especially in this country. And to kind of go through uh, as a medical professional, my, not my personal role in that, but my profession's role throughout that history, uh, specifically focusing on kind of the origins and the current incarnation of uh, what we would think of as conversion or reparative therapy. So uh, I think that that merits not just one, but two episodes, because there's a lot to talk about. Uh, And I think it's important for us to talk about because only by understanding this stuff are we going to be able to stop it since it's still going on. So if that is something that may be triggering for you, this episode and and actually the one we'll record next uh, may be one, maybe ones that you want to skip. We have a wide variety of other offerings. We encourage you to check out our uh, putting weird holes in your body department just upstairs. It's lovely. (laughs) But, uh, okay, so I'm ready, and I'm going to have lots of jokes, so don't worry. They just probably won't be related to the topic at hand, uh, That's but I'll fair. try this, to. You know, it fits into the Sawbones theme of really ridiculous, misguided stuff that was done in medical history. It's just, it's harder since this is also in- incredibly harmful and horrific and just terrible. And with that said, <laughs> let's get going. Uh, So first of all, thank you to everybody who suggested this topic. Uh, Jennifer and Kimberly and Mike and Sarah sent us emails. And then I know we've gotten a lot of tweets and Facebook posts and things suggesting that for a long time that we should do this, but specifically right now. So we should uh, also address at the top, like, and and maybe this might have some thing to do with the, mm -hmm. the reason we haven't covered the topic before is that Sydney and I are both like straight people. 
and and we're uh i think we had some trepidation about taking on a topic like this because you know we don't necessarily want to tell another mm -hmm. community story but we also don't want to not tell it so we are doing our best as straight people to communicate this exactly to and i hope you'll be um i hope, hope we do our do justice to it we'll do our best we'll do our best so as we know sexuality and sexual preference as well as uh, gender for that matter is a spectrum and always has been and same-sex relationships have been observed throughout human history and not just human history in many other facets of the animal kingdom and we know this and we've known this for a long time and we understood it and accepted it as perfectly fine until we didn't uh, and then and in the second episode, I'll get into more like kind of the, the religious roots of that. But for now, let's just accept that there was a period of human history where this was fine. And then we decided it wasn't. And what started was kind of the criminalization of the practice. Before we get into the medical aspects, we first just criminalized any kind of sexual intercourse that wasn't basically heterosexual vaginal penetrative sex. All the positions, I'm assuming, are still okay. Uh, depending on where you were. Yeah, the state by state, it varies. Yeah, yeah, really. Uh, decriminalization of same-sex intercourse probably didn't really start until post-revolutionary France. Of course it was France. France. I love you, France. Uh, they Where it was just kind of conveniently left out, like after the Napoleon, Napo Napoleonic era. Just kind of, they didn't talk about it in the law anymore um and, but the real interest in the subject of do we need to do anything about same-sex relationships is there something to say about it other than i mean what had been said so far was which was just either put these people in jail or in horrible cases let's kill these people uh what what else could we say about it and and this really came into play in the late 19th century as we were beginning to spend a lot more time talking about mental illness so this was the first time where we began to understand that maybe sometimes people committed crimes related to an underlying psychiatric illness that would make them unable to make what we would consider you know basic right and wrong decisions mm -hmm. so the idea that somebody would be unfit to stand trial is just blossoming okay uh and under that umbrella came same-sex relationships, LGBTQ. Uh, this was a good thing in the sense that Whoa, it... Whoa, no, I don't mean shocked to, the world <laughs> no. with their unorthodox views No, sexuality. I don't what I mean... Sawbones grind through a hall as world shudders act surprisingly... Oh, sorry, go ahead. This, this seemed like a good thing initially because it moved this... Uh, it moved these relationships out of the realm of the criminal world and into basically into the psychologist's office, right? All of a sudden we have doctors who are saying, well, this isn't, this isn't, you know, deviant, maybe this is a disorder. Okay. And so we need to do something about it. There were a lot of, uh, many German psychologists, a lot of the thinking came out of Germany who were kind of setting the idea that maybe what they would, they called it sexual inversion was some kind of genetic trait. And they would refer to it as some sort of psychosexual hermaphroditism where it wasn't an anatomical hermaphroditism, it was a psychosexual one. And so you were drawn to express the, the what they considered the opposite gender traits, very stereotypically speaking. And so then you would 
display these other sexual tendencies. And and there were a lot of progressive thinkers in Germany who were actually saying, you know what, this is probably fine. This is probably just a variant that we're not recognizing. Like some people do this. Other people do the other thing. It's no big deal. It's probably fine. Um, Obviously, that was a minority view at the time. Sure. Um, And that challenged the predominant belief among a lot of physicians in the 1920s that same-sex attraction was some kind of birth defect. Mm. That it was just something that, I mean, maybe you could cure medically or maybe you couldn't, but you're just, you you were born with, but it was a defect. Uh, Physicians were concerned about it, but they really didn't know what to do about it. And until Viennese endocrinologist Eugen Steinek attempted a procedure where he took the testicles from a male guinea pig and transplanted them into a female guinea pig. And then he began to record results that the male guinea or that the female guinea pig began demonstrating some what were thought of as traditionally male characteristics like mounting behavior and things like that. So from that he started to posit the theory that maybe these traditional sexual behaviors and stemming from that gender roles came from testicles. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Take a shot in the dark. Why not? So maybe we could fix it with surgery. Maybe it was just a boss female guinea pig who knows what she wants and wants it now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Maybe it had nothing, wasn't even testicle-related at all. Well, I, I think you're seeing a lot of a lot of assumption that it is simply a testicle that makes a man or simply testosterone that makes a man when obviously we know that things are a lot more complicated than that. Yeah. Uh, also, um, please remember that um, uh, as we judge this person, and, and rightly we should, also remember that they had to go home and uh, look their spouse or significant other in the face and tell them what they did that day. And a lot of days, that was cut the balls out of guinea pigs. So that's <laughs> like their whole, and put them in other guinea pigs. And that was like their whole day now, also. But okay, back to judging them. Now, okay. And, we, and I think it's very fair that we judge him for this. He did a lot of other things in endocrinology that were actually really good medical advances. I'm not going to get into that, though, because what he did next was he partnered with a surgeon to transplant testicles from straight men into gay men to try to fix them. You messed up. Like, yeah. you don't get to be in history anymore. Yeah. So I'm sorry. The, the results were subjective. They basically, after it was over, the two doctors went, it was a success. It's great. They're very masculine now. They're over there grunting and burping and scratching themselves. Total success. Just Trust us. Don't masculine. talk to them yeah. or anything. Yeah. But the, it was great. Don't ask them who they'd enjoy having sex with, for sure, because that one we haven't worked out the kinks of, but it seems to be <laughs> well other than that. No, actually, this was a this was not a success, even though initially they thought there was some hope uh, for it. They uh, Their human body rejects things that aren't tissue compatible. So there was rejection of these testicular transplants and these were huge medical problems. And so it was a it was a complete failure and obviously should never have been attempted to begin with. So nobody was convinced by that. Nobody thought that was the way to go. So some like Freud, Freud plays a role in this story. Sigmund Freud. Mm-hmm. In case I don't know if there's another Freud that anybody ever just refers to as Freud. But there you go. Uh, began to believe that. Since it it was a mental illness, maybe this is treatable not really by some sort of surgery or medication, but by therapy, you know, psychoanalysis, especially hypnosis. He was a big fan of hypnosis. And initially, he kind of promoted this idea, made it popular among a lot of other psychiatrists and psychologists, um, which was very harmful, of course, because he was Freud. His ideas were thought to be 
very grand and influenced many people. But he later changed his mind about it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He later said that he thought, you know what? Same sexual attraction, same sex attraction is probably fine. And generally, most of us are born bisexual anyway, Hmm. and we really don't develop a defined sexual orientation until puberty. And he did he did tie same sex attraction to certain what he would think of as like childhood traumatic events or repressions or those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But he basically said that you can be well adjusted and be gay and it's fine. Um, and he stated that as far back as 1935. He also, he's, not only did he say it's not a disorder, but he said, you shouldn't try to treat it, mainly because you can't. Mm-hmm. There's actually a really famous letter he wrote to um, one, a patient's mother who wrote him first and said, please cure my son. And she described her son, and he writes back this letter and says, I take it from your letter that your concern is that your son is gay. He wouldn't have used that word at the time. He would have said homosexual. I I believe you think your son is homosexual and let me tell you this is fine, you know, and there's nothing I can do about it and there's nothing anybody can do about it. So let it go. Fixed. The end. Okay. (laughs) Freud has spoken, folks. That's going to do it for us here on Solvers. Now, this was not the final word. Uh, You know, even his daughter, I don't really talk much about her in here, but even Freud's daughter, who was a a famous uh, psychoanalyst as well, um, she actually kind of said, you know what, we really shouldn't use that letter as what he truly believed because she went on to practice like hypnosis and therapy to try to oh, wow. fix. I'm using that with air quotes, fix gay people. Yeah, we're using later. a lot of air quotes. Well, yeah. The fingers are flying here, yeah. folks. Just assume. <laughs> if you think it sounds like we should be using them, we probably are. The uh, So the conservative American culture that followed World War II changed any of this kind of progressive thinking that maybe was starting to happen. Any of these thinkers who were saying, you know, maybe this is fine. Maybe we were wrong to criminalize this. Maybe we should embrace everybody. Uh, We got this very kind of stereotypical definition of gender roles in this country after the war. The family unit was supposed to be a man and a woman and whatever, 2.5 children and a dog Mm -hmm. and a white picket fence. And, you know, traditional gender roles were strictly enforced and society was very rigid. And all of the psychoanalysts and psychiatrists and psychologists and all these people who came of age in this era came into this atmosphere as well and followed these same beliefs and applied them to sexual orientation. So many psychiatrists in the 1950s and 1960s felt that any, you know, same-sex attraction ran contrary to the natural order of things. And they saw Freud as kind of a pessimist. He just didn't know how to fix it, so he said it can't be fixed. Mm. But not because it isn't a problem, just because he wasn't smart enough to figure it out. They thought they were smart enough to figure it out. So you start to see these psychiatrists. One was Samuel Haddon, who was a psychiatrist in Pennsylvania, who began bringing groups of gay men together who were seeking conversion. People who, because of the oppressive society they were living in, felt that they were wrong uh, inherently as, as people. And they began to seek out these doctors to help them. And the psychiatrist would bring them together to like share and interpret each other's dreams, uh, talk about their feelings and what he considered their neuroses. And he talked about how over time they would begin to cast aside their flamboyant clothes and mannerisms, and they would get married to women. Done. And 
There you go. You start with the clothes. Day one. <laughs> start with the clothes. All your cool clothes that look rad. And you, all, <laughs> all of you look fantastic. Please take those off. And go get married to a woman. Go get married to a woman. That's step two. It doesn't matter which woman, guys. That's the way it works over here for straight people. We just <laughs> pick the first one we see and go for it. Uh, there were other psychiatrists who joined this kind of belief that if we just talk to people, you know, we could kind of account for the, whatever caused them to be gay. That, there was that thought that something in their past, something in their psychological history would give you a clue as to what caused this. And then you could, you know, quote unquote, fix it. So psychiatrists, uh, Socrates and Bieber, not that Bieber, mm-hmm. a different Bieber. Different Bieber. I have no. Maybe a distant relative. I have no reason to think that. I knew you were going to say that. Get at, get at me, Biebs. Let's talk it out. Uh, but they spoke out prominently in the media. So these psychiatrists were being interviewed, and this was being published in newspapers and magazines, that same-sex attraction is just this maladjustment that's born of childhood trauma, and we can correct it. We can fix it. It might take a while, but you send somebody to a psychiatrist, uh, and it and it you, it takes a long time, but eventually we will fix it. And so you see these people I actually read this really emotional account from one man who sought out a psychiatrist to try to help him um, as a young man because I mean he was he was desperate. He thought that he was broken. He thought he was wrong. And he it's this very complex relationship. Even now he talks about with this psychiatrist who. Uh, tried to do all this therapy and and convert him to a straight man. It never really worked. He was always unhappy. Um, And today the psychiatrist has apologized and said, well, everything I did was terrible and I'm so sorry. And I can't believe I did this harmful thing and I've, I've ruined your life and I'm the worst person on earth. And, and it's this really complex relationship because this patient says, you know, yeah, it was wrong, but like I asked you to, and I wanted you to, and society made me think that this, and you know, I have this close relationship, so I don't hate you for it, even though it was this terrible thing that was being done. And I don't know, you get all these really complex accounts mm. of this kind of period. Um, Cause a lot of this right now is just talking. A lot of what we're talking about at first was just sitting with somebody and talking. And then a lot of, oh, I have to mention that there was a neurologist at this point who said that you could cure it by riding a bicycle for a long time. Now, I don't understand. I have to throw that out there. That doesn't make sense. (laughs) No, I don't know how that worked, but a lot of men rode a lot of bicycles for a while, and that was it. They got really well-developed calves. But a lot of terrible things start happening now as we move away from just talking. Well, normally this is the part where i'd be like go go on tell me more i can't wait to hear more but i don't actually but we still have to so let's take a break real quick let's go to the billing department blessed relief of commercialism let's go the medicines the medicines that escalate macabre for the mouth we have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in march around these parts and that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although there will be some Wendy's consumed. But we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat, delicious meals right to your door. And not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real, high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan. Um, but they got like fancy stuff. Listen to this. Where are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? 
from 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 a, a box pre-prepared? All I got at two minutes? I mean, filet mignon? That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious. And you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're talking pancakes, smoothies. They got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious. And the meals you just eat and eat. There's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week. You're going to get exactly what you want. No surprises here. Uh, and the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McRoy fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McRoy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier than you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going Squarespace, to— Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool—think of it as— the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great-looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com slash sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hi, this is Griffin McElroy. Hi, this is Rachel McElroy. And we're the host of Rose Buddies. It's a podcast about the Bachelor family of products. We watch The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, and Bachelor in Paradise. Yes, it is garbage television, but we're the king and queen of this garbage pile. We're the raccoons in charge around here. So join us on Tuesdays. Because the TV show's on Mondays. And basically we'll recap what we saw and we'll just sort of scoop the garbage around us and make a little fort out of it. No viewing required. But it's it's a good TV show. What are you doing? <laughs> All right, Sid, before I so rudely interrupted you, things were about to get worse. That's right. So we move on from this era of, you know, kind of the classic like Freud, like psychoanalyst with the leather couch and, you know, kind of telling the story of the relationship with your parents and your dreams and whatnot to some really um, aggressive approaches in the in the psychiatry and psychology world. One was called confrontational therapy. This was developed by Dr. Bergler. This involved basically the way you would confront your patient was to yell horrible things at them in hopes that they will stop being gay. So call them names, tell them they're worthless, tell them they should die, tell them everybody hates them, tell them that they're broken and they're sick and disgusting and that the thought was this would foster some shame and guilt and this would motivate you to change so idiotic i mean you can't even give these people a passive like well it's a different time we didn't shut up because like they people who are doing this were seeking out your treatment 
like right i assume mm-hmm. right? yeah yeah a lot right. of these no one, they most a lot of these people weren't being conscripted into it right like no well uh, there were there were people who sought this treatment for sure but you have to understand and i probably should preface with this there are many of the things i'm going to talk about that were done to children adolescents young young men and women who whose parents were seeking I help for point them stands that society at the time was already doing a pretty bang up job of this like right yes. you know what i'm saying yes. like the guy sounds like man it's gonna be hard not to curse on this he, and say go ahead I, and it, it's almost like uh at the time he this specifically dr burglar was very opposed to the research that had just come out from dr kinsey who was actually really ahead of his time and progressive when it comes to lgbtq issues and basically said this is fine and i don't understand why why are we trying to fix this this is not an illness and please everybody stop what you're doing and which was adding a lot of fuel to the fire of the very beginnings of the gay rights movement and this really made this burglar guy angry and he i guess uh, his therapies just got worse and worse and a lot of other therapists and psychiatrists followed suit and came up with increasingly horrible ways of trying to stop people from being gay. So that could include things like uh, electric shock therapy, electric convulsive therapy. Uh, you could apply shocks to the, the hands or the genitals or the head. A lot of this would be accompanied, with, accompanied by like having your patient recount um, a same-sex experience they had or fantasy they had or movie they saw or something like mm-hmm. that as as a way of trying to apply a negative stimuli sure. so that you would be averse to it aversion therapy was very popular at this time in general um castration was attempted uh the female genital mutilation was done bladder washings were done like a douche no okay no that's not a bladder washing i'm sorry i'm not a doctor that's okay no that's a different orifice okay oh okay got yeah. it yeah yeah bladder yeah. sorry sorry yeah. got it for where, sure. where the p is super sorry yeah uh there were a, a lot of places not just in the u.s this was actually done in the uk too where you would give people drugs emetics things that would make you puke uh after you were exposed to what they would consider like gay materials so they would show you a picture of a gay couple and then try to induce vomiting to try to connect that reaction to gay behavior this Uh, is obviously disgusting and hugely troubling so this whole list has just been the pits so let's do just a quick sidebar the way sydney has that line written in her notes is drugs that would make you puke when exposed to gay materials and i was sitting here (laughs) freaking out like what pill is this are you kidding me there's a pill that makes you puke when exposed to gay materials? No. That's impossible, Sydney. That doesn't make sense. I was questioning no. the, uh, the authenticity of the entire endeavor. My outline just has enough words in it that I know what it means. Okay, That's sure. all it ever does. That's all it ever means. That's all right. Um, we know, we've talked about it on our lobotomy episode before that lobotomies were done for all kinds of horrible reasons. And obviously, same-sex attraction was among them. Um, things like strychnine, cocaine... They tried to induce insulin shock in some patients, basically give them so much insulin that they became very hypoglycemic and went into shock. There was a drug called metrazole that has since been removed from the market because it gave people these horrible, like, back-breaking spasms when they took it. Um, it was used for other psychiatric illnesses as well, but this too. And if all that failed, uh, some were advocates of just beating somebody until they agreed not to be gay anymore. 
because that's in any way a Has medical treatment. Has ever been treatment. effective treatment for anything? For anything ever. ever. Um, what helped to turn this tide was really the gay rights movement. Um, I would, you know, I would love to say that these psychiatrists and psychologists and therapists realized what they were doing was absolutely horrific on their own, but it really was outspoken gay rights leaders with the assistance of the minority of social workers and psychiatrists and psychologists who were progressive and forward thinking, who agreed with them, who began to, you know, write the course of history. Uh, Things happened like Haddon, the psychiatrist I mentioned earlier, who kind of started the talk therapy, was invited to speak at a rally that was put on by Janice, which was a huge gay rights organization based out of Philadelphia. And basically, once he got there to start talking, they just eviscerated him, shouted him down and, you know, called him out on every one of his lies and every one of his pieces of data that weren't data and, and everything. Demonstrations like these that were so prominent and newsworthy led to more people in the medical and, you know, psychology world kind of questioning the prevailing wisdom of the day and beginning to think that maybe we're going about this wrong because we're harming, obviously this is causing harm. And if a treatment is doing more harm than good, we need to take a step back and see, is this treatment appropriate and why are we doing it? And have we made the correct diagnosis? And in this case, there is no diagnosis at all. So they began, there was a small group that began to wonder, is there a way to do sexual orientation affirming therapy that would have better results for these patients? How do you mean? Meaning to tell people that it's okay to be gay. Oh, that's a radical idea. Yeah, that maybe that would be the better way to go. What really helped with this was in 1956, uh, Dr. Evelyn Hooker. So she presented a groundbreaking study that caught the attention of a lot of people in the medical world. She had not set out in her career to to kind of stake her claim, make her name, studying, you know, issues related to LGBTQ um, patients. But early on in her career, she gave a lecture to some of her students where she was working uh, after she had gotten her PhD. And the student came up, one, one student came up to her after a lecture and said, listen, Dr. Hooker, I am gay and I want you to study me. I want you to come with me and meet my other friends who are also, you know, part of the gay lesbian community and I want you to learn about us and talk with us. And if somebody will study us and show that this is not a problem, that we are happy, healthy, well-adjusted people, just as normal as anyone else, then maybe this will go, you know, maybe this will help. Maybe this, maybe this science could help show people that mm -hmm. they're wrong. So she spent a ton of time hanging out with people that, from a community that, by the way, she had had like no contact with before. So kind of opening her eyes um, and interviewing and, and assessing her new friends. And, and then she went and applied for a grant, said, you know what, all these interviews aren't gonna mean anything. I need science. I need a grant to do a study. I need a real study with hard data to show people. So she applied for a grant. It was a huge, it was the longest of shots that she was gonna get a grant to do a study to prove that gay people are not maladjusted in some way because that was not the prevailing thought especially among people in the government who were approving grants right but uh the the story is that she was incredibly charming in person and she went for her interview and just charmed the heck out of the guy and, and he eventually agreed to give her the grant 
So she got it and she set up an experiment with 60 men. Half of them were gay and half of them were straight. And she subjected them to a series of psychological evaluations, including uh, it was this time a Rorschach test. Um, and, and the Rorschach test, by the way, was supposed to be like the most sensitive to tell a gay person from a straight person. <laughs> Yeah, that if it, you could always tell by the Rorschach oh, yeah, test. Rorschach would give away every time. So after she had gathered her profiles from all these tests, she submitted them anonymously to three other psychologists. So she just handed them a stack of 60 profiles with no names on them. They don't say whether the, whether the subjects were gay or straight and said, you need to decide two things. Who's more well-adjusted in all these, among all these people and find the gay men. <laughs> Who's gay and who's straight? They couldn't do any of it. They could tell no difference. Of course, we know this. This is, this is, we know this now. There was no difference between the gay men and straight men. You can't tell by psychological evaluation because it's not a psychological problem. And there is no difference in how adjusted or maladjusted they are because it's not a disorder. It's not an illness. So she presented this in 1956 and this was explosive. You know what? I, I had a temptation I uh, I would say fleeting temptation when we were talking about some of the more monstrous uh, medical practices to 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 try to couch that in the fact that like it's you know it was science following the lead of society science had convinced itself this was an issue society was convinced it was an issue and it was science trying to find a fix but I think the reason that that uh, that doesn't fly is that this is where the science should have started like. This mm-hmm. you can't. It it is a failure of society aside. Mm-hmm. It is a failure of science that this this did not start with, you know, ethnography and 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 yes, this this sort of study before fixing it, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, sorry. No, was, it, was even part of the equation. You're exactly right. It's unfortunate because that's not the way science works. Science seeks truth, no matter how uncomfortable that truth might be for any given person at any time in history. Um, and that was not how the science started. Mm-hmm. The science finally got there. Uh, following this study, this led to more grants, more research. This had a huge impact on the changes to come. And this gave a lot of uh, ammunition when it came to gay rights activists and groups who were able to cite these studies and these findings and say, this is why, you know, politicians and lawmakers, this is why this is wrong. This is why this discrimination is evil and wrong. Um, and then, of course, in 1969, the Stonewall riots drew national attention to the issue uh, and the importance of the medical profession standing up and saying it is not a pathology to be gay. It is not an illness. Mm. Um this was supported by, in 1969, the Dorian Society of Seattle founded the Dorian Counseling Service for Homosexuals, which was the first counseling center to focus on sexual orientation affirming therapy, meaning that you were going to see a therapist who was going to tell you, listen, I know what society says. They're wrong. You're fine. There's nothing wrong with you. You're not broken. You're not sick. This is just who you are. And it's going to take us maybe a while for everybody to get there. And you might need the support of a therapist to help you deal with society. But you are fine. Um, In 1972, what also helped with this was Dr. John Fryer, who was a psychiatrist who appeared in disguise as Dr. H. Anonymous at the um, annual meeting of the American Psychiatric Association and sat up on a panel in front of all of his fellow doctors and said, I am gay and I am a psychiatrist. He was terrified to reveal his identity. He thought he he would come under violence and nobody would ever 
see him again as a doctor and he would lose his license. Um, but the idea that, you know, among their peers were, you know, fellow members of the LGBTQ community and they were being persecuted by their fellow doctors for no good reason. This really moved a lot of the other psychiatrists. So finally, as a result of all this, 1973, homosexuality as a diagnosis is removed from the DSM-2, which is like the psychology, psychiatry Bible of diagnoses. It's where they list all the different, you know, kinds of different psychiatric illnesses and diagnoses. Uh, but, but hidden in the uh, somewhat in the diagnosis uh, that they added was ego dystonic homosexual homosexuality. So initially in 1973, they take that out. That's a huge landmark moment. But they put in this diagnosis of ego dystonic homosexuality, which means uh, you're you're gay and we're fine with that. We don't have a problem. That's not a problem. But you're really depressed about it. And we think that's a problem. And so we want to diagnose you with this. But this was still like a weapon used against the LGBTQ community because it still put the problem, the diagnosis was on the person instead of society. Well, yeah, the because probably, the it's problem. not a diagnosis because probably speaking, you're talking about a country and a time when it was still incredibly hostile to homosexual people. Exactly. Like, so this is not a real diagnosis. This right. is, this is again, putting the blame on the victim instead of on society. Right. Um, and this, this diagnosis was used as a weapon for a long time in conversion therapy. It was removed from the DSM because of this in 1987 but it does still remain in the World Health Organization International Classification of Diseases. You can still find this as a diagnosis. Mm. Uh, in 2013, the DSM-5, the next iteration of this, uh, added gender dysphoria, which still exists. And while the, the, that's a whole other topic, not really the topic of this show, this is really similar in regard to gender as ego dystonic homosexuality was to orientation, because it's basically saying a transgender person who is not happy or comfortable with that, with them being transgender because of society. And so we give them this diagnosis instead of saying, no, the problem is that we have a society that discriminate, discriminates against transgender individuals. And that's still in there. Uh, the, the short story on all of these efforts to convert gay people is that they lead to depression, anxiety, self-destructive behavior, things like drug abuse, homelessness, and suicide. And also they don't work at all. Any of this stuff that I just named, it only had negative consequences and it invariably does not work. And it is rejected by the medical profession pretty much in mass today. Well, so we're done here. Gosh, I thought this was gonna take two weeks, but... Oh. Justin, I wish we were done. Okay, well, uh, that sounds <laughs> ominous as I'll get out, but... There is another, even as the medical community was finally starting to get its act together, there was another movement that would rise its, raise its ugly head and continue these, these harmful therapies, and we'll talk about that in part two. All right. Uh, well, folks, thanks for hanging in there with us. Um, I, I, again, I just want to... I'm really concerned about this i just want to make it clear from my perspective like i know that i did jokes and stuff because that's the show we do and i just really hope we're not experts in 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 this stuff so i'm we're trying to do our best to to say the right things and not do more harm and we're doing our best so um uh 
Right. Well, I, I know that uh, we've said this before. We, we avoid topics like this sometimes on the show because there, our show's supposed to be funny and there's nothing funny about this. And mm-hmm. we're not we're not pretending that there is. But I do think it's important history. And I think, again, if we don't remember and understand where we came from, we we are in danger of going back there. Yeah, and I and I don't mean to make light of it by doing jokes either. It's just it's that or scream at the top of your <laughs> lungs for a half hour. So you know it's kind of up to you. It's your choice. Um, that's going to do it for us. Thank you to our sponsors. Thanks to MaximumFun.org for having us on there. Um, this week I will recommend uh, a new show called Reading Glasses that was just added to the network, and it's about books, which I'm 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 just gaga about them. I like them too. You fan? You yeah. a fan? Open them up. Um, so go check out Reading Glasses. The very first episode has Sarah Benacasa on it, and you can uh, go listen to it. So go get it wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Um, thank you to the taxpayers for the use of their song "Medicines" as the intro and outro of our program. And thanks to you for listening. We will see you next week. Uh, but until that time, my name is Justin McRoy. I'm Sydney McRoy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.